This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Patreon is a monthly subscription that you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. And you can find us on our YouTube channel with the same name. And you can start watching the episodes as they're released. Thank you for listening. And thank you for watching. I'm Rani Shatah. And this is The Beirut Banyan. a small announcement before we get to today's episode. Um, viewers and listeners of the podcast, if you happen to be in New York and you're up for a glass of wine, you now get wine on the house simply for listening or watching these episodes. All you need to do is go to La Bonne Soup in Midtown. Their address and their info is in the details box. You get house wine on the house. You get free Lebanese wine with any meal you purchase. And for delivery, all you need to do is add the promo code Banyan, B-A-N-Y-A-N. Uh, I'm friends with the owner of the bistro. Uh, his name is Jihad Hadidi. Good friends. Known him for over 10 years. Met him at AUB. And uh, it was a small dream of his to own a French bistro in Midtown. And he made that dream come true. He opened a few months before COVID-19 struck. And he closed when COVID-19 forced many places to close in New York. And then during the protests, he boarded up. Last week, reopened. New York laws are a bit complex right now. Uh, you still cannot serve inside. You can serve outside. And the setting is so pleasant right now. It actually reminds me of Beirut quite a bit. Except here, all the legal regulations, you need a lot of permission and all that. But like Beirut at the end, furniture is on parking spots uh, people are eating outdoors and in a way that's it's, it's very comfortable and i've been going there regularly but make sure you mention this podcast if you show up enjoy their wine order a meal get lebanese wine on the house and if you don't want to show up and if you're just lounging around in new york at home like we've all been doing to a certain degree the past few months and you feel like getting something by delivery make sure to add the promo code Banyan, B-A-N-Y-A-N. Make sure you mention this podcast if you meet Jihad. He's a fan of the podcast. Uh, he claims to be a regular viewer. I don't know if that's true. So if you show up, question him. The last episode was on. And if he gets it wrong, make him give you two glasses on the house. And uh, you might see me there. I've been going there quite a bit since they reopened. So there's a good chance you'll see me uh, having, uh, having my own drink outside. So... Again, thank you for everyone who's been watching and listening. Take advantage of this offer. It'll go through the entire summer until uh, August 31st. Uh, these terms apply. And now to our podcast episode with Fatima Asseyeh. Fatima, let me start by apologizing. Before I thank you for joining, before I compliment you on your recent piece in LCPS, I need to apologize. I'm diligent with timekeeping, and I always update my software. 
and I did the software update correctly today, and then I completely missed our appointment. That's because of the software update. So it's a lesson <laughs> no learned. Lesson learned. Never do a massive update before recording. Yeah. <laughs> Everything failed. But you're very kind and patient. You let me sort of reboot, and here we are 30 minutes later. First of all, I did not know you're in Canada, which actually oh. maybe it kind of it'll offer a wider story here. I thought you were in Beirut. Mm-hmm. And I read your recent piece in LCPS about COVID-19 and in many ways the Lebanese state's handling of the pandemic. I just assumed you're in Beirut. Turns out, no, you're in, <laughs> you're in Edmonton. Yes. <laughs> yes. And yes. I, I complimented your lighting. I'm like, oh, that's great lighting for late at night. Like, no, no, it's, it's noon. <laughs> <laughs> midday. <laughs> it's midday, yeah. Yes, yeah. So that actually, maybe I can maybe take the story a little wider mm-hmm. and talk about what you're experiencing yeah. there as well. Yeah. But let, let me start, though, in Beirut, and we can mm-hmm. kind of make our way to Canada. Yeah. Right now in Beirut, back in maybe March, April, there was all this social media celebration of the mm-hmm. handling of the pandemic. Even among friends, I was receiving messages like, you know, America got it wrong, but Lebanon got it right. <laughs> And to a certain degree, it was being tackled properly. And this is coming from a naive sort of understanding of what it means to Uh tackle properly. But it seemed the initial stages, Lebanon got it right. Uh Last few days, social media has turned on Lebanon. And now you have these images of sort of gatherings happening, parties on the beach, and people very close to each other without masks on. I think there was a bit of a parody, the Minister of Uh Health talking about, you know, the overcoming of the pandemic while everyone is crowding by him and not many masks are on. Mm-hmm. So just before we jump into the piece, your immediate reaction to what you're seeing in Lebanon, do you think the state is still handling it okay, at least compared to other countries that have handled this pandemic? And do you think the population is still taking it seriously enough? Or are they beginning to kind of Maybe not make, not make mistakes, but just maybe navigate the moment and letting those masks slip, not taking precautions the way they were maybe two months ago, three months ago, mm-hmm. and just sort of dealing with it in a different way. Just just your immediate reaction to both sides, the state and the population. Um, well, I would say um, maybe um, I think I told you this um, before this. You saw the recording, but I just want to make it clear that <laughs> just to put a disclaimer out there. So I'm a I'm a public health researcher. Um, I'm, as you said, based in Canada, and I would say uh, at most I'm an external observer and a concerned citizen. I would say um, Lebanese, of course, and uh, so I'm not you know I'm not an expert really in the topic, but I uh, kind of started building. Uh, uh, some work on this since the beginning of the epidemic and and just observing really and trying to kind of criticize or analyze what's going on. I prefer talking to to concerned (laughs) citizens than self-proclaimed experts. So I'm glad you're a concerned citizen. Uh, I I say I have the epidemiological training and, you know, all that kind of, you know, uh, technical training that I need to be able to do this. But I would say, and I'm still very concerned, uh, I I would say, that answers both of your questions. So um, I I wouldn't say it's a yes or a no um, answer to your questions. But in terms of handling it, um, as you said, I think, uh, and I mentioned this in in multiple times, that I think the... um, 
the way the government handled it so far has been okay and, and has been uh, primarily, I think, because of the decisions that they made really early on mm-hmm. with like school closures and, and all that. Um, there's so many issues around the whole strategy overall. Like we could talk for hours and hours around the technicalities of um, how these decisions were made and, and how, you know, but we're at the stage where, you know, you close up the whole country. And then that's an easy decision to say, okay, well, shut down the schools, close all the malls, public places, tell everybody to stay at home. But then that can't, st- you know, we can't yeah. keep that forever, right? Absolutely. And then we, we, and it wasn't really clear if the intent uh, was to, uh, we heard so many times the intent was to, you know, to do risk mitigation and not complete suppression. So the intent wasn't necessarily to reach zero cases and then say, okay, now we, you know, we completely eradicated the virus from the country and now go back to normal life. And we can have this celebration that people are having now. We're not there. Mm-hmm. We have mitigated the risk, decreased the number of infections. We're still seeing infections. And that's normal to happen with the approach that has been used. Right. Um, it's not clear this kind of opening up how it's happening um, on paper, we see something. In reality, it's very different. Um, it's not clear how the decisions are being made. So what are the parameters that are we monitoring um, to say, okay, now we can open up this, or now this, we go from this phase to this phase? Right. Um, that's not clear. And in terms of the public, um, I think, you know, we say, you know, I say that the, the government took early on decisions and and th- those were very helpful, but I think a huge element was the people. I yeah. mean, um, I was in Lebanon in March, um, so, um, and I, I remember it, there's fear. Uh, people in Lebanon were wearing face masks in March. Um, right. Yeah. And I remember I flew back to Canada through London and in, in Heathrow, I was probably one of maybe three people who were wearing face masks. In Lebanon, everybody was wearing a face mask at the airport. So there was a huge fear factor. And just in casual conversations with people, there is, I mean, we all know there is very little trust, I would have to say, in the health system and in how the government was going to handle the epidemic. So people were saying anything but getting this or anything but getting sick. So that uh, concern and always this there's always this expectation with the Lebanese that you know everything's going to go bad things will go wrong so we'll prepare for the worst mm. we don't we, we 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 don't have this sense of oh well the government's going to take care of things we always think of the worst and in this case I think it it worked. It helped because it made people really super compliant uh, right from the get go. And if you remember. Um, even before the government announced the full lockdown, people were asking for declaring a state of emergency to a point where one of the local TV channels actually declared the state of emergency before even the government did that. So I think the level of awareness of the people and, and that, that really, really helped a lot. We see a lot of that changing because I think the strategy of opening up is not really clear. There is we're not going back to how things were before COVID. That should have been really clear. Right, right. Right? Um, We're we're going back to something, we're opening up into transitioning into a new normal. So we're lifting up some of the restrictions, but these individual level interventions, so social distancing, keeping the six feet or the two meters apart, wearing a face mask in places where you can't maintain that, um, you know, um, washing your head your hands and so on, 
um, these you know are still in, should still be in place. Uh, there is always a huge gap between um, what's said and what's done in Lebanon, um, and that's not just in healthcare, and that's not just you know public health. You know we say. 30% capacity in public places. And then we see these pictures that, you know, you just referred to. And then the problem is, okay, so what happens after this? Well, we know that people will not be compliant and we know there will be, and that happens everywhere. Mm -hmm. But then how do you deal with it as a government? Um, is any kind of accountability, any kind of, you know, following up on these things, we, we don't see, we don't see much of that. So um, even the piece that you refer to, um, I just want to say one last thing uh, with that. But before you do that, I want to add my disclaimer. Yes. Although you're not an expert, that is probably the best summary <laughs> of the pandemic <laughs> I've heard in Lebanon <laughs> since it began. So thank well, you for not being an expert. You've uh, now well. <laughs> you've actually raised the standards. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you, but but well, it's no, a, no it's, but it's a very good it's a very good way of showing what people got right and what the state got wrong. But I'll let you finish. Yeah, I'll let you finish yeah. that, that thought. And it, it was just about the piece that you referred to, like this last piece for the um, Lebanese Center for Policy Studies, that um, just kind of uh, uh, reflecting on the exit strategy, that was the whole idea. And, um, and it was the hardest thing I've ever had to do, <laughs> I've ever had to write. And, and the problem is, you know, when you reflect on something, you have some material, you try and review, okay, this is what's, what, what they're proposing, this is what they're doing. And then you go by, you know, okay, well, let's analyze this. Let's see how this complies. Uh, we don't have, we just have something on paper, extremely simple, extremely brief, very little communication of really what this strategy is, right. very little communication of how we're going to implement it. Um, so the lack of that information, uh, I don't want to conclude and say it means it doesn't exist. So if they don't say the implementation strategy is going to be one, two, three, I don't want to say it doesn't exist because they just didn't share it. So, um, that lack of clarity in all of this is is been consistent, and a lot of people raise this um, issue, um, and that's why I wanted to focus a lot in that piece on the communication, on transparency, on on sharing data, because there are a lot of people who looked at the technical details. Uh, there's actually you know one group at AUB uh, um, that provided a, a, a document to the ministry and said you know this these are tools on how to do exit strategies, and it's highly technical. Uh, you know, there are incredible, you know, people who, who, are, who, who know the, how to do these things. But then you look at what the ministry is, is sharing and, and we don't know in the background what's happening. And I think that's the problem. <laughs> we, we don't know. We really just don't know. So just I just wanted to say that, that what, what I try to reflect on is just with what we know. Uh, I don't want to assume they're not doing certain things just because they're not sharing it publicly. So, um, um, so it was kind of limited, I would say, in that sense. I think that should be the episode. <laughs> that was really well said. I, I, you know, I'm going to I'm going to link the the piece to the to this episode. It's called "What Is Missing in Lebanon's COVID-19 Exit Strategy," and it actually, it, it, the way I read it, is it starts off by showing that there was some consensus between the population and, and the state. Where mm -hmm. It's almost like politics and the population's willingness to take it seriously met. 
and you mm -hmm. outline the phases and it's very easy to follow but somewhere in the middle you kind of there's a negative sort of uh there's a disappointment i'd say in how it was mm -hmm. handled and now it's almost like a hopeless case there's one area i want to emphasize in though Mm -hmm. It says, um, and you, in a way, I like that you actually, out, you know, I don't know anywhere else that I've seen the phases written out. And so in a way, you're, you're kind of doing the state's job, I think, and kind of explaining what exactly is going on. But there's a part that I want to focus in. You say, despite the announced dates of reopening various sectors, the plan has not been followed as intended due to several factors. For instance, some sectors identified, and you elaborate on this, phases one, two, and three, have reopened with restrictions, which is what we're seeing at the moment, as well as malls from phase four and nightclubs and beaches from phase five, which is really just the last few days. Yet schools, universities, and other institutions remain closed. As such, it is difficult to assess which phase Lebanon is currently at. Additionally, it is not clear whether the government has updated the exit plan, and if so, what the updated plan entails. Such information has not been publicly announced or shared. Now. I'm going to ask you just your own, your personal reflection. It, I, I saw on Twitter something, and I believe it's on your profile as well. It's the health nerds. And, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, now I've had wonderful <laughs> conversations about finance and the economy yes. <laughs> with the Finance for Lebanon crowd, and they identified yes. themselves as nerds too. The nerds. And yeah, and it's kind of the same conversation. In other words, this is how you can alleviate the economic crisis. This is how you can maybe remedy certain financial pain at the moment. This is how you can have a successful IMF negotiation. That's finance. And it's the same kind of tone. It's that this is how you should do it. This is the only way to do it. And it's not happening. And I sense from your side that there's a similar kind of frustration with the Lebanese state. That even though the, the know-how is available, mm -hmm. whether you're in Canada or in Lebanon, many people have been writing about ways forward and maybe the only ways forward, whether it's pandemic or economic mm -hmm. crisis, and the state has very little interest or curiosity. And is that the same thing you're feeling? That in other words, you've outlined the stages. I mean, this is the phases the Lebanese state set out for itself, yet it doesn't even know which phase it's in and doesn't know how to handle the story <laughs> or the narrative. So just your, your own reflection on that kind of dilemma, technical know-how, and then the state's, I don't know, I don't know what to call it anymore. It's not, it's not incompetence. It's literally just, you know, letting things happen on their own. It's almost like a mm -hmm. hands-off policy. So just your own reflection um, on that. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, as you're talking, it's just so many ideas coming to my mind. I, <laughs> just, the first thing that I want to just highlight before I answer you is just the health nerds. So we actually, it, it's a group, same as the nerds, and it kind of, we called it the health nerds after that group, because it's a, it's a group also of medical professionals, scientists, researchers, um, many of which are based in Lebanon, many are, you know, around the world, and who also got together and kind of started doing, um, you know, just brainstorming ideas and trying to think of, okay, what should we do? And, and, and also trying to to keep the government and the ministry, specifically Ministry of Health, a little accountable. So questioning the, what they're doing, and 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 it's really just to improve the the response um, uh, to the pandemic. Um, so so you're, you're so, this collective, if you want to call it, yes, this online group is meant group, to yeah. to com to channel ideas to the Ministry of Health. That that's well, the, not necessarily oh. directly because mm. they're not working, but just right. through social media or through, you know, each in their own institutions, trying to drive the conversation at least around certain things. Like right. mm -hmm. we've highlighted in the beginning, the issue around testing. So we did some analysis. We showed that 
you know, why we have an issue around testing, um, uh, the strategy of testing, and then around the underreporting of numbers and so on. Yeah. Uh, we also, there was a lot of, you know, a big campaign that was around correcting misinformation and myths around the COVID. So, uh, so we we're trying to fill in gaps where we felt that um, this information was not publicly available. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of, we were looked at a kind of a trustworthy group because, you know, it's an independent group. It's not affiliated with any you know, government organization, and it's just a group of experts that's trying to fill in the gaps. We were actually able also to support some of the local media organizations in kind of understanding the uh, information around COVID or right, analyzing right. data or how to present it and so on. So, so, another, so sorry, to <laughs> sorry to interrupt you, sorry, but that, in other words, doing the state's job. Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, of to, course. To a certain uh, degree, filling in the gap of information. Yeah, well, actually, my personal involvement in, in this started with me trying to look to see the data that, you know, eventually I ended up working on, because I wanted to see, are there any models? Uh, where are right, we at? Right. And I couldn't find it. So what I ended up doing is sitting every day, extracting little pieces of data from the reports from the Ministry of Health and compiling this data and doing analysis myself. And I was not really a Twitter person or posting so much, but I wanted to start this conversation and say, okay, are we asking questions around this? What are we doing in terms of testing? What are we doing in terms of this? And then there were more questions and we, we you know, we were able to contribute to the conversation, I would say more, mm -hmm, more so, mm -hmm. but, but it's not just in health, as you said, in finance, in, in everything we have, we have a lot of competent people. We have exceptional talent in Lebanon and abroad uh, who are, you know, who know how to do things, who know the yeah. how to. Yes. And, and you probably heard this a lot that unfortunately these people are not in the decision making seats. Um, these people are not the ones who can influence um, the action or policy uh, in Lebanon. That's mm -hmm. the, that's, and this is not just health. This is every sector. Absolutely. Um, and there's, you talked about why, why could it be? And I think part of it is this, this, this engagement. And we, we know that um, this is not new in Lebanon. There is, you know, the government always says, okay, well, you know, we know what we're doing and then, you know, just mind your own business. And, and I, and I want to say this in Arabic because I heard it in one of the interviews for the, uh, the minister of health and one of the reporters was questioning, please, please, be horn. Then no, we'll, no, no, we'll, we'll, we'll get flagged. No, 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 but it's something, no, 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 I won't. Absolutely not. It's something that the minister said, actually, I'm not, I'm not saying anything. I'm just requoting him because he said it in Arabic. Sure. Uh, so he said she was questioning the strategy around testing because we were kind of just putting this out there and saying, hey, ask about testing and the strategy. And he said simply, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, and this is unfortunately, it's just to reflect the attitude. It's not about... How, how, would, you, how would you translate that the oh, friendliest, friendliest way possible? Without, <laughs> it, I mean, yeah. You know, don't, don't tell us what to do. And that's not the intent of all these people who are trying to contribute to the conversation and trying to... It's not, you know, you know what you're doing, but, you know, there is also this sense of... Um, they're missing things yeah. and your job right. you're, you're a public servant There's so many issues in Lebanon that are much bigger than health and just the Ministry of Health There's just the whole culture of governance, you know, you're a public servant you You have to respond to me when I ask you a question You know whether you were elected or appointed to a particular position your job is to do what people ask you to do and 
pay you to do. So let me but let me guess, it, let me gauge your mind on this because I've I'm old enough now to have seen many false starts when it comes to the Lebanese state. What I mean by that is somebody within the Ministry of Transportation decides to enact certain laws. And then suddenly mm -hmm. you have these random checkpoints making sure we're all wearing a seatbelt. <laughs> Just a very uh, ad hoc few weeks frustration where you have traffic piling up. Yeah. And okay, that law is implemented. And within a few weeks, nobody's checking anymore. It fades away. But that law is still in the books. Yes. This is maybe a, a silly example given the moment, but I think it, yes. it, 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 it matters. The non-smoking policy in restaurants and bars and that kind of stuff. You know, maybe for a few days, people they try maybe to follow the law and yeah. i think that law is still in the books i think it is somewhere yeah. in the books nobody does it so yeah. that's a maybe naive example but i think it it shows just how the state doesn't follow through but you at the same time you've outlined phases that the lebanese state set out so what is the stumbling block there the beginning you have a you have in a way a ministry doing its job a month or two months later it's just sort of watching from a f just sort of you know reluctant to yeah. even what is that is it that there's is it sim simply that laws are not applied in lebanon in almost anything therefore it affects this sector as well or is it that they don't treat the pandemic as something critical that they're really saying that this is maybe hurting the economy more and therefore we don't want to get involved we'd just rather not deal with this right now I mean, is, is, do you sense an incentive yeah. to just not care about about implementing their own laws that were set out in I think it was uh, March? Yes, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't think it's um, 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 I think it's more of what, of the first that you said, not the mm. not, not that they think it's a you know economically, yeah, it is economically a, pr a problem and and that's part of why we're opening up mm -hmm. uh, so to kind of you know get the economic cycle back. But um, I think the issue is, there is no concept of accountability whatsoever. Yeah. And then I believe if that does not exist in the institutions, in the government institutions, the individual person is not going to behave in an accountable way. Um, and you cannot come and hold me accountable if I can't hold you accountable as my government. Right. So if, and this is not now, this is not, I'm not talking about this specific government or the specific minister of health. This is, has been the issue of governance in Lebanon. And it's not just the health sector. It's, you know, we're hearing it now with the huge, you know, economic crisis and then the finance sector. There's zero accountability. And I would say zero. I wouldn't even say one. I would say zero accountability. So, and, and it kind of became ingrained in the culture. Like in Lebanon, people say as a joke, oh, there's a law about this, but well, who cares? Right, and, yeah. Right? I mean, you, I mean, when you use perfect examples. This is These are the things that we see every day. There is no sense of accountability whatsoever. Right. And, and this is how... So we, we have a major structural issue in Lebanon that goes beyond health. We have, you know, system-level changes are needed beyond health. Um, and, I mean, hopefully with, with this, you know, what's been happening in the country. And, and there are a lot of people who see that these changes are needed and who are driving for these changes. Um, but unfortunately, we, we are... This happened at a time also where there's so much, you know, turmoil in the country and and um 
uh, yeah, so there there are a lot of a lot of issues, and I, you can't separate. I mean, you can't even evaluate how the 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 public is responding to to the uh, you know the government, uh, let's say, um, uh, mandates or recommendations compared to other countries, given the economic crisis that we have, given the the, the it's it's very different. The context is very different from you know there to let's say even the United States or um, uh, any other country. Yeah, where there's so now less compliance. But yeah. that, that's an important word, and I, you know, I've, for better or worse, I've grown. And maybe I've heard it so many times, but it's true. Accountability is the big issue, and I think it's yeah. it's it's in a way, it's the, it's the driving fact that it's what people went to the streets for in October. They mm -hmm. wanted a more mm -hmm. accountable system. They're not mm -hmm. asking for uh, miracles. It's just a decent transparent system that they can hold to account and that's mm -hmm. the that's still the struggle at least in my opinion is sort of something that you see in all sectors and I agree with you it's it's systemic but then comes the population side and I've I mean it's in a way the Lebanese population is probably among the most skilled populations in terms of navigating any storm I mean we haven't had 24-hour electricity in how many years in Lebanon and I mean, we found a way. <laughs> we found a very, very unfortunate way, but it has. It works. <laughs> it works. That's the generator industry in Lebanon, yes. and it's yeah. created its own issues. But it's also, mm -hmm. I mean, most, not most, enough Lebanese have survived this way, and seem to have adjusted accordingly. They don't trust the state. Anyway, there's that, and then you have a population that has to deal with a pandemic, and they mm -hmm. maybe don't trust the state. Do you, do you sense that that is the reason why people took it extra seriously at the beginning? Mm -hmm. They were they weren't waiting for the state to tell them what phase they're in. It's almost like lay off us. We can handle this. We know how to handle everything else. Is it, is it come to that where a population is no longer even curious of what the state's protocol is at this point? That they've given up altogether. And they can handle a pandemic mm -hmm. their way, and and maybe that is why Lebanon did fairly well at least at the beginning. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's a uh, was a huge element that lack of trust and and the fear of why what might happen. And there was uh, very little um, information. I mean, there's still little information now, but yeah. um, in the beginning. So um, and we know that the healthcare system in Lebanon. We know that there are certain maybe centers that are you know really um, uh, great in terms of quality of care and, and and services, but not everybody has access. And right. um, yeah. and so that's that's a major issue. And we know that everything, even at the beginning, um, there was only the Rafiq Hadidi Hospital in Beirut was the assigned hospital. So you have people from you know all over the country worried that if I'm going to get you know if I need a test, I'm going to have to go all the way to Rafiq Hadidi Hospital to get tested. So people <laughs> yeah. they they know. I mean, again, this is not just health in everything. Sure. They know what the government is. Is, is able to do, willing to offer. And in the middle of the economic crisis, I think even the fear level went maybe more up and, yeah. and pushed people to be a lot more cautious. Um, and then throughout the pandemic, this is the, the other issue, the lack of transparency in the information, the data and the numbers. Um, I have had so many conversations with Lebanese who are, you know, whether they are medical professionals or just, you know, the average person, people don't trust even the numbers that are coming out every day. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. I use these numbers and I go with these numbers because these are the official numbers, but the individual 
you know, Lebanese. They're like, no, we don't believe these numbers. So if, which is the, you know, the, the, the base, most basic piece of information around the pandemic is what is the actual, you know, number. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so if, if people are not even trusting that, I, I, you know, of course, you know, you would worry a lot about um, a lot of other things, and especially now talking about, you know, shortages in uh, medications or medical equipment and, and things like that, not a uh, lack of clarity around the system capacity, even around COVID. Till today, we really don't know how much of the system is devoted to that and, and what's the actual scale of the capacity of the healthcare system to handle, you know, different scenarios. Uh, we don't know. We really don't know. So, I mean, I was there <laughs> in March and I saw how my family was reacting and my friends and the people around me. And, and it's exactly what you said. It is just fear of the unknown. So they were extra vigilant. Um, There's also something else, though, when it comes to the, and this is, these are just, it's, it's imagery. You see masks that are available pretty much everywhere in Lebanon. It's easy mm -hmm. to get a mask. And, and enough people did at the beginning. They got masks, mm -hmm. but never really an issue. I'm, I've been in New York since January. Mm -hmm. At the first month, I mean, you had to order a mask and wait maybe until May to get it. If you were lucky, you'd find a mask mm -hmm. in some shop. It took time to catch up. Mm -hmm. That to me was very startling. It's like, wow, it's, mm -hmm. there are certain things that seem to emergency handling of any, I mean, Lebanese are good. They can, they can cope with oh, an emergency yeah. <laughs> well. But when it comes to long-term strategy, that's yes. where Lebanon fails miserably. But, but in the short term, the start yes. there's something there yeah and, absolutely yeah. Uh, but just with a comparison we always have to be really cautious i mean you're talking about with new york we, within a span of two weeks we went from you know ten thousand cases to a hundred and sure. plus yeah. you know hundred thousand plus cases right lebanon we're still till today thankfully i mean still under two thousand cases overall that's true so yeah. the scale of it was just no, that's an important reminder. Absolutely. Right? I mean, just, yeah. just to kind of make sure that not to say that. I mean, again, I said it several times that we're in a very good shape compared to a lot sure. of places. Yeah. Just how do we move forward? Um, but that, actually, that's a nice segue into another part in your piece. And I'm just going to quote you to you here. It's a little further down. It says, there are many factors that influence people to change their behavior in times of a pandemic, such as threat perception, communication, leadership, social context, as well as individual and collective interests. In Lebanon, a number of system level and structural issues have imposed challenges in the response to COVID-19, including a largely privatized and fragmented healthcare system, lack of comprehensive national ep epi epidemiological <laughs> surveillance <laughs> networks, thank you, no effective and transparent communication, low public trust, and significant political polarization. These issues require calls for action in the future. In, in the mix right now, when it comes to all that we've seen happening, at, let's go back to October, the push mm -hmm. for reform and accountability. Do you see health in that story? And I'll, I'll ask it maybe in a broader way. Are people able to cope with that fragmented system and, and, and is it something that you see as maybe not taking a front and center stage when it comes to the protest movement? Or do you see it as something critical, that this is part of the major story? 
that we need to talk about health care. We need to talk mm -hmm. about health reform in Lebanon. Because it's not a conversation I hear too often. Mm -hmm. It came up during the pandemic. But prior mm -hmm. to the pandemic, it's not maybe the loudest. It's not the, it doesn't make headlines, so to speak. But mm -hmm. I got from you that it is something very critical. And obviously, the pandemic showed the flaws very clearly. But, Absolutely. But, but do you see it in the mix, at least when it comes to the current push for reform and accountability? Or do you think it's something that will yeah. stay in the background? I I don't see it in the mix now. Uh, I don't see it being discussed, although I think it should be. Mm. Um, I I believe health um, healthcare should be a basic human right. Um, it it's not um, you know health education, uh, but I think the issue. Um, had we not have the, uh, the the current economic crisis, uh, maybe the the COVID uh, crisis would have um, and the pandemic would have um, outlined that issue a lot more. Maybe it would have turned right. the discussion more around. Okay, because it has in other places, even other countries where there is no um, universal healthcare or public you know public health system is weaker. It showed how much of an issue that is during the times of a pandemic, and right. it showed how in countries where you have you know publicly funded healthcare systems, universal healthcare, it just in terms of at least the access, it's it's just incredible how different that is in, you know, and that's one of the bigger discussions now in the US, for example. Yes, right. um, and, and yeah. you know, that's, uh, but I think in Lebanon, it, what's taking over is the really, I mean, severe economic downturn. Uh, I mean, we're in a stage where people are worried about putting food on the table. Yeah. So I understand that, you know, and and I still think that is health is as important. I mean, if you don't have your health, that's <laughs> equally bad, right? But but this is where I mean we're we're in serious conditions in the country, and and I think the focus of the discussion um, is on that. Uh, but I definitely I think that health um, should be part of it, and we know that in in you know the the private healthcare has kind of took over in Lebanon for many, many, many years. The public system is very weak. Yeah. And there was some discussion. Like yes, you said, exactly. It kind of came up with, it, like, especially with, like, you know, designating the Rafiq Harir University Hospital exactly. yeah. in the beginning. And they said, well, this is a, this is a very underfunded hospital, mm -hmm. but the incredible team of, of healthcare workers there uh, and leadership that actually was able to manage throughout this whole pandemic, although it's highly underfunded uh, and it has been for many, many, many years. Um, so it, it showed that we need to invest more in public, um, in our public healthcare system. And that's not to say, you know, just completely take over and there's always pros and cons to both private and you know yeah. completely private or completely public but but Lebanon is a, is a perfect place where you can have both models but there has to be much more strengthening uh, particularly particularly in the smaller um, you know non-big cities in the rural areas yes. of Lebanon right because we know that the bigger you know, private hospitals, uh, bigger centers are more in the centralized. They're more in the bigger areas mm -hmm. with very little access from rural um, areas in the country. No, uh, but can uh, I ask you, like in a, in a historical context, I mean, I only hear about how you <laughs> could you could drink water from the tap before the Civil War. We had surplus power. Um, you wouldn't double park on the street. You'd get a ticket. I mean, things that are they're silly examples, but but they resonate with me. It's everything that you just assume would not happen today. That should happen. Mm -hmm. Historically, the healthcare in Lebanon was it much better? 
than today? Or has it always been a kind of an underserved sector in the economy? Um, you know, I, I, I can't fully answer your question because I, I'm not very familiar with how the health system was, uh, like the historical you know, aspect of it. But what I know is that, uh, you know, after the Civil War, there was a huge investments into uh, the private, private sector yes, because right. the, the public sector wasn't able to manage all, you know, the, what needs to be managed during that time and afterwards, uh, and then potentially almost took over the public yeah, sector. Right. Um, so um, I'm not sure in terms of the quality of care or mm -hmm. um, the access and all that, how it was prior, mm -hmm. uh, uh, but it was, uh, but just knowing, I would say, without studying it in detail, I would say, uh, the, the, uh, everything has always been so centralized in bigger cities, in Beirut primarily. So the, the rural areas has always been uh, underserved in terms of healthcare. It's, this is not new. Uh, and even in, uh, in many other aspects, even when, it, when you talk about uh, other you know, uh, sectors within the government, always um, there's that centralization. And there were reasons for it back then, but I mean, that's, that's one of the, the things. Um, um, yeah, but absolutely. I mean, I agree with you hundred percent. This should be big element, big part of the discussion today when we talk about reforms. Yeah. Um, and it's an unfortunate reality that even in the private hospitals, and it doesn't matter about, it doesn't have to be in Beirut throughout Lebanon. Mm -hmm. These hospitals are also unable to pay. I mean, the, the crisis has mm -hmm. hit them in particular. So it's almost like they're vulnerable. They're as vulnerable as any other entity mm -hmm. within Lebanon. But mm -hmm. at the same time, it is a celebrated part of Lebanon that we have such high quality private uh, mm -hmm. health care. And I always mm -hmm. found that as, as an odd sort of situation that you can excel in that. And then the rest of the country sort of is unable to, to do the same thing with, with education. You have these very, very, mm -hmm. very well-established private institutions and the public sector is not up to par but then it's like you said lebanon is perfect for both and should be able to celebrate yeah. both in equal measure and absolutely yeah yeah and i i mean with that i mean yeah i mean we have great quality healthcare. we have great centers and it was very popular that you know people in the region come to lebanon to do you know for certain health and we have you know incredible i'm so glad i was so worried you were going to say <laughs> plastic surgery but you didn't which is good. no no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but the issue is i think that is great yeah. But the purpose, in my opinion, the purpose of the healthcare system sh should be serving also the health of the people in that particular country. I mean, we can't just have, you know, great uh, whatever plastic surgery centers serving the region <laughs> yeah. and not have basic primary care, right. uh, you know, uh, uh, basic care for the people in the country. So people have to think twice. Again, access. This is the issue. I mean, it, th that's why, okay, privatization is good in terms of healthcare, but it shouldn't be the only way to do things because you're limiting uh, the access of a huge proportion of the population that's actually pretty much paying for that public system. So, yeah. uh, so in, for me, I see that it, it should be serving the people of the country first in a fair way, in an equitable way. Um, make sure there's access to everybody. And then we can think of, you know, having these really fancy plastic surgery <laughs> clinics serving the region or yeah. whatever. But we have we have great capacity. We have incredible talent in Lebanon. It's just the, the mismanagement 
and the the the, the governance of it is what's you know what, what you end up with these types of, of, of issues can i ask uh, you just a personal question is from your own experience growing up and seeing that up close did that drive you to enter your field on for yourself did you did you see yourself as sort of trying to remedy this issue i'm curious about your own personal relationship because <laughs> it's it's an area I'm, I'm very nice. I don't. Ha I'm not well versed in, in health, and in public health, and health and the whole sector. So I'm, I'm curious what would take someone into that into that uh, area and become not an expert but a concerned citizen. <laughs> uh, well, uh, personally, I actually uh, uh, I started uh, my background. My undergrad was actually in nursing. I see. Okay, I, I finished my degree and I never worked as a nurse because when I was doing my training, I realized that, well, first of all, I, it, it just didn't, the, the bedside kind of aspect, the clinical aspect was not very close to me. I was just, it, it was, I, I was very emotional with it. Like, so it was really hard to, to, to do that part. But the other part was that I'm interested in the population level. Mm, I want to yeah. do more. So I went into public health right away. So, and then I started training in my public in public health. Right. And then I did training in public health, and then I studied epidemiology. But then I realized that knowing the just the the skill or having you know the technical aspect of things is not enough. We need to talk about policy. So then I kind of <laughs> going into this next level. Yeah, so now right. I'm kind of studying public policy. <laughs> right. Uh, because I think that's where the change has to happen, and. Yeah, I did see all of these layers and challenges in in my education. Well, I did my undergrad and my master's in Lebanon, and then I moved here for my PhD. So I've I've seen all these different levels. Mm. But uh, but yeah, it was. I mean, the number of issues that needs to be addressed and worked on is just endless. The reason I asked you this, it's a relatively personal question, I know, but the reason I asked you is because I sense from every conversation I've had with these nerds, the conglomerate, whether it's health or finance or, or any sector, is that this is where politics should be. Because when I, when I read all these pieces and I hear the discussions and I watch them, that's political debate in my eyes. Mm -hmm. And you see it a very healthy uh, d uh, exchange of ideas. And there's almost mm -hmm. like a common understanding of what the goal is, maybe not necessarily how to get there, but there's shared concern and shared mm -hmm. interest in getting there. Mm -hmm. And then you have Lebanese politics the way we know it, which is a, um, I don't know what the word is anymore. Yeah, that, that actually, that, that, if, that, if you could write that, whatever you just did, if you can do that and like write it out, exactly. It's, uh, that's it, a very deep, long sigh. Deep, long sigh. It was, I mean, that is, this doesn't happen. And from my experience, my conversations, it doesn't happen within the system, within the state's orbit so to speak mm -hmm. if it does happen it's not common and it's not it's not it's just not there enough and i okay. i the reason i'm curious is because if the answers are political but political in in this way in policy and an actual uh, mm -hmm. system reform and everything you've been mm -hmm. describing is there any way to translate what you're suggesting and what all these people are suggesting into political power in Lebanon? Because I'm curious about that disconnect, where you have somebody dedicating their life to improving healthcare in Lebanon, and then you have the usual suspects in Lebanon that are 
they seem to be the obstacle. They're, they're the major obstacle. Yeah. So yeah. if it were someone like you or someone in your shoes who wants to take this home and, and use it and, and implement change, what are the avenues possible? Well, the first thing I want to say is I think there is you know, enough, enough talent and really competent people who know what should be done in Lebanon. Mm. As I said before, unfortunately, these are not in the decision-making yeah. seat. Right. Um, uh, I think uh, uh, without a civil state, without a state where people are put in certain positions based on their um, abilities, based on their, uh, whether they fit for that position, uh, without that it's almost I would say it's impossible to mm. to move forward if we're going to continue with you're going to be hired in a certain position because you belong to this you know religion unfortunately or to this political party or whatnot uh, this type of system it's I mean evidently it doesn't work it's not working uh, hope we I mean we can't say we, we don't have hope <laughs> uh, but uh, I don't see with this existing system anything changing at all um, I don't believe anything will change and I think uh, maybe one of the things that uh, I don't know I kept thinking about it since the beginning of this revolution and and I said okay how, how, how do you step forward how do you push it forward yeah. why haven't we why haven't we moved on I mean since since we have okay the civil war and people still talking okay we we know there's leaders from that era who are still running the country and so on and the word that kept popping in my mind was reconciliation. I don't think we've ever had true reconciliation in Lebanon that would actually allow us to move past this existing system. And even, I mean, we're talking here about, you know, public health and a, and a position here and make any change, but it all comes back to that individual person who is so worried about their own um, you know, safety, and that safety is, you know, they they go back to their own political group or a religious group, and they get that uh, safety net from that group. And if we don't go past that, and if we don't get that from the state, uh, we're never going to move forward. We'll never be able to. And and I. And just that moving forward, yeah. stepping, it's not like reconciliation is a switch, you know, turn it on and then we're all great. It's a process. But I don't think we've ever, ever uh, done that. And then I hear the same thing repeated in, in every sector, that the only path to reform in Lebanon is a civil state. The reason, and let's assume that is the path. Let's, let's go with that. I'm curious always about the way things were before the civil war and we didn't have the civil state that that you're referring to which is clear we never had that and in modern lebanese history it didn't exist we had some sort of maybe slightly uh slight majoritarian power sharing structure that faded away with mm -hmm. the civil war and then it re-emerged in the 90s mm -hmm. as something different but it's, it's that same power sharing uh, whatever entity that we're famous for. But before the Civil War, these sectors were not nearly as mismanaged or corrupt. And that I'm sure about. And I've even spoken to economists who talk about, you know, corruption in the 1960s and, and feudalism and all the things that you would imagine to go wrong in a society, crony capitalism. 
everything mm -hmm. that was everything that exists now existed back then mm -hmm. but not nearly to the same degree mm -hmm. so i'm always curious of what would a civil state do exactly for improving sectors within the lebanese state because mm -hmm. it almost seems and I, I agree with you i want the same state but i'm worried i'm worried that maybe what you said earlier reconciliation and properly moving out of a post-war environment is maybe that's the actual that's the more important thing how we mm -hmm. govern ourselves may not be the most important and that's why i'm asking you this question i, I like that you mentioned we never really emerged from the civil war mm -hmm. we're still mm -hmm. in that in that we're still operating as if a civil war exists just not as many weapons as not not nearly as mm -hmm. much violence mm -hmm. am i getting that right from you that, yeah, the, the, yeah absolutely okay. and and, yeah. and you you said it you know it's exactly what i was trying to say is that i think you know our goal is that civil state but i think the road and how to get there in my opinion i don't think we can start getting there without that reconciliation right and then you talked about the pre-war era and the post-war i don't think the major issue here or the biggest impact was on you know we know it was you know positions were based on um, you know certain positions were for certain religious groups and mm -hmm. so on but what the war did and we should never forget that is that that sense of belonging that sense of it is was no longer for the state it became to religious groups yes I get my safety I get my protection I get my from my you know religious from this you know whatever within a particular religious group yeah. and we never emerged out of that I mean, yeah. why do we have this now? Why are people so attached to it? And then, uh, you know, people start talking about, well, you know, the, the rights of this, you know, uh, religious group and that religious group and so on. And people are, you know, pushing for that because they feel that a state will never grant me these similar rights. Right. While yeah. in reality, I mean, yeah. a lot of the people you talk to, they're like, you know, I want to try, I want to go live outside Lebanon. I want to immigrate. While in the, you know, you can go into any of these Western countries where people want to immigrate, uh, a state, irrespective of who runs the state, grants you your rights yes. and you have your duties towards that state. Right. If we establish that, then people no longer need this, uh, you know, uh, you always affiliated people have, you know, different uh, religious beliefs and so on. But that's not your sense of belonging is to a country, to a state. It's right. not to religious group. And I think that's the biggest impact, you know, post the war. And, and I'm not talking about this as an expert. I'm just talking about this as a Lebanese citizen. Absolutely. Who grew yeah, up yeah, yeah. in that time. And yeah. I've, I've, I've seen it. And I've seen how around the elections time, people start talking about our group and our people and our this and our that. And, and I mean, you've probably heard this conversation and and you've heard people talking about this sure but you're but, but in, in many conversations i haven't heard the reconciliation priority and i agree with you i think that is a yeah. that is a, that is the first step that wasn't taken like growing up uh, always had questions about the civil war we don't study the, the the we don't learn about the civil war in in school we don't learn about it in, you know, even when we talk to our parents, their whole, you know, the, the, the sense always, that's all it, they sum it up with, just that line. 
And I started learning about the Civil War in my 20s, reading books of, um, you know, um, mostly foreign journalists <laughs> who are there, you know, Robert Fisk and the I like. Knew, I, I, I knew, I mean, I, I say, I, I, <laughs> look, without look. even, yeah, it's... I... <laughs> and, and it was like, a, it's like a taboo to talk about the Civil War. And as long as it remains a taboo, as long as it remains something that we don't openly talk about. And this is not about, you know, uh, reconciliation is not about, you know, uh, these people have to pay this price and these. No, it's about coming into terms into what we really want to a common, a common vision of what we want this country to be like and but, move forward. But that's in a way and, you're, you're bridging the divide, I think, because you're showing two things. You're showing that nostalgia is for the pre-war years. And the pre-war years wasn't a civil state. So nostalgia is for a respect, respect, respecting the state, whatever that is. In other words, yeah. a, a relationship yes. with the state. Yes. That ended with the war. And, and maybe that relationship wasn't perfect. Maybe it wasn't even great, but it, but it managed. It managed somehow. Mm -hmm. Now the relationship is not with the state. The relationship is with mm -hmm. regime figures that many people want out. Yeah. But but I like that you're you're framing it in a way that okay you can you can demand that they leave, but there's still an elephant in the room so to speak, and Absolutely. that's that's reimagining our relationship to the state, and that state ended in the early 1970s. So it's really going back and trying to, it's not patching wounds. It's almost like uh, trying to resuscitate a a body that's been left more or less to die. So I, I actually I like that that's the that is a first step in any direction that is positive. You need to talk about the bigger problem that we never really talked about. Yeah, yeah. I think we kind of inherited um, that elephant in the room yeah. from the previous generation. Right. And and I think a lot of people in in our generation are willing and are able and and they can have this conversation. Um, and I think it's incredibly important because we can talk about health and, and you talk with the nerds about finance and we can talk about all different sectors. But when the issue is, you know, um, structural, systemic, state, uh, it's a, a, a system level issue. Um, and, and beyond that, a vision of what, yes. what it's a vision. What, what is it? What kind of, what, what's the Lebanon that we want? Uh, then talking about these um, small, yeah, I, I don't want to call them maybe small, but these technical issues become really, um, it, it's meaningless. Uh, because Absolutely. Because we know, we know what needs to be done. Yeah. We know how to do it. We have enough excellent people, competent people who can do it. Yeah. But. And there's no need, there's no need to repeat every yeah. few years. I mean, it's all there. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. Fatima, I'm going to wrap it up with the hardest issue I've saved, oh. the most challenging for the, for the last. So you've been very kind with your time. It won't take too long, I promise. It's no just worries. it's something that I, I really wanted to ask you about. And it's the, and I think you, you in a way, you, you phrased it along the lines of that the consensus between the population, the, the public, and the political establishment, mm -hmm. it may have been there at the beginning of the pandemic, and it's not it's not there right now. And I'm going to quote you to you one more time. At the early stages of the COVID-19 outbreak in Lebanon, there was a relatively high degree of political and public consensus on the need for a strict lockdown. Over the course of the outbreak, consensus has considerably withered due to several factors, 
including political polarization that is exacerbated by the worsening economic crisis. Political polarization leads to further decrease in public's trust, privileging partisan labels over policy information, believing false information and fake news, and detrimental effects on social and public health. I want to hone in on the economic crisis. And I'm going to maybe try to ask mm -hmm. you to pro just project a bit coming months that because we are experiencing hyperinflation, I mean, the beginning of hunger, I mean, it's just images that are horrible, that are unthinkable in Lebanon, uh, a worsening situation. And I think it was this morning, another uh, resignation, I think mm -hmm. it was the, yes. the director of the finance ministry resigned mm -hmm. publicly in protest. So let's assume the economic decline worsens. Mm -hmm. And COVID-19 today is not, I mean, the, you, you said it to a degree that the state is not sort of tackling it the way it should. And then you have these images of people being maybe a little too carefree about it. Mm -hmm. Is this a recipe for disaster? Meaning that, <laughs> meaning that the pandemic that Lebanon, and, and you said it earlier, the numbers were not staggeringly high compared to other countries. Mm -hmm. Lebanon actually came out okay, so to speak. Do you sense that Lebanon may actually sort of go the other way? Because of what we're seeing in COVID-19 may only exacerbate the, 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 the mm -hmm. bad situation we're in. Yeah, um, I think yeah, I think there's a very high risk of things going in the wrong direction, um, and not just in Lebanon. I mean, everywhere, wherever yeah. you open up the, the economy, more so in Lebanon because of a lot of the factors that you just mentioned, the economy and so on. Um, the 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 scary part and the, the part that worries me a lot is that it's not really clear this opening up. Um, how it's happening and what are we ba so even and that's something I mentioned in, in that paper is that uh, in the original plan there was like a one week period between one phase and the other yeah. and we know that's an extremely short period of time uh, to evaluate um, so this is this is why we talked about all these um, you know measures that were taken early on shut down everything yes right that's fine. And and even though it wasn't done like perfectly well, but the cumulative effect of shutting down everything worked. Now, okay, we'll start reopening up. But when we start reopening up with everything, we have to evaluate, okay, what, right. what kind of impact that has on, you know, the the, uh, the pandemic and the epidemiological patterns that we see and so on. That's not clear. We don't even know what kind of parameters the, 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 the ministry is following and how to... Uh, so, so to, pre to be able to predict what's going to happen or to try to predict even different scenarios is really hard because we don't know what parameters they're, they're monitoring right. um, in each of these phases. Even now with the opening of the airport, I think this is going to be really you know critical step so there's also one week between opening the, the airport for 10 percent yes right right and then full capacity yeah <laughs> uh, and we and we've seen like a few cases in some you know parts of the country where there was um a surge in cases in a particular town because of someone who's coming from uh, abroad an expat and and this was so er early which, on this was like maybe a month ago right it was one yeah. guy spread it to dozens of people yeah but it did happen actually it happened several times right yes yeah yes. but it wasn't the, the the same scale right but right. that shows that we have an issue here with what's happening when we open up the, the when people come back and 
And I'm all for opening up the economy, but it's not just whether we open it or not. It's how we open it and how we monitor how this pandemic progresses as we open all these different sectors. Um, so when people come back, what's the what, there, there aren't really any clear um, guidelines or uh, and, and more importantly, how do we enforce those 14 day, you know, isolation and yeah. and uh, there's no I mean, obviously, there was no enforcement. That's why we had those few surges and few outbreaks in certain places because of someone coming back. Um, there was odd, odd, odd instructions about license plate day by day. I mean, odd numbers and even numbers. To me, that seemed like the most bizarre way of trying to handle a pandemic, limit traffic yes. on certain days. <laughs> Did, I mean, that, that was, is, is, what was that about? Is it trying to just keep people at home? Was that the intent? Well, there's, you always have to think with these public health measures, there's two levels. Mm. There is kind of the overall population level, you know, type of intervention. And then there's the things that we try and, and, and recommend at the individual level. So at the global, the, the kind of population level, we say, okay, shut down public places, schools, trying to, um, you know, eliminate or limit as much as possible um, uh, people being in close proximity to each other. Right. Yeah. And then at the individual level, we say, you know, wear a face mask, wash your hands, mm -hmm. get tested, so on. Mm -hmm. So these should still be in place. These should not go away, the individual level, right. you know, interventions. Yeah. The, the other interventions, it's sometimes I think about what happened in Lebanon, and I just the way I imagine it is that there's, you know, this basket of all kinds of public health measures that could be done. <laughs> and they literally just picked it up and said, okay, do it all. And it worked. But I mean, this, but, but there's no, the problem is, I mean, I mean, you implement something and, and you want to evaluate what's the impact of that so that when you remove it, you also can evaluate what impact that has. So they I know, implemented I know. that odd, even car plate. Yeah. The alternate yeah. thing. We don't know what impact yeah. that. So, so can I? That, that's the reason. Right. I, the so, reason I brought it up is, is that really what you're talking about? That they're doing a bunch of things ad hoc and they're not following up. There's no, there's no, there's no policy at the end of the day. This is just dealing with it as it comes and hoping for the best. Well, with the lack of transparency and communication around how decision making is being done around all of these measures, that's my conclusion. Yeah. Um, if if uh, we don't know, I, and I said this right from the get go that I'm I'm you know I'm evaluating what I see, but I don't know what's happening, what kind of how these decisions are being made. With that odd even, if anything, it actually made things worse because it made the roads more uh, crowded at certain times uh, with uh, the, the curfews and so on. And this is the other issue is that when you shut down, and we we saw where. The curfews were implemented in places where the outbreak got out of hand, right, right, uh, because it it was too, um, you know, the transmission was way faster than doing, you know, something simple as, you know, just asking people to wear a face mask or wash your hands. Yes. So it was a little bit, I think, too much for where we were in Lebanon. I think, right. Um, and and the I think the issue with that is that when you tell people stay at home, 
um, don't do it, you know, don't communicate with anybody, lock down and then open the door and say, go, (laughs) you know, new normal that no one knows how to, to, I think being able to go out with the face mask, with the social distancing, people need time to get used to this new normal. It's not like, you know, we tell people you should do that and the next day everyone is doing it. Um, So that curfew, uh, those extreme, I think there were extreme restrictions Mm -hmm. with really, I don't know what the value of these, we don't know what the impact of these were. If anything, it deterred this behavioral change. It kind of made it a little bit harder. Right. because if people were out and about trying to learn to live in this new normal, it would have made things a little bit smoother in this transition. Uh, but then, of course, you see things like these mixed images of, you know, celebrations. And you mentioned, you know, with the, with the minister, with that, you know, big celebration that they did. Like, that's, that sends, like, this is a very, very wrong message. And, and I understand, you know, people maybe were happy and wanted to celebrate that. But the right message would have been, we'll do that when we actually (laughs) are over this pandemic. Um, I think that was a horrible, horrible message to the general public. Um, Despite the mask and despite all that, I mean, you you do, you try and do a lot of work and then you just take it out with just one image. Um, That's very powerful. And, um, and, And a lot of people, I mean, and you've seen probably a lot of people criticize that, but that does leave. That's why you see that image that we saw two days ago on the beaches with pool parties. Yes. And, and you know, you say, okay, well, uh, we talk, you know, back to accountability. Who do you hold accountable? <laughs> uh, these people, uh, these people should be accountable. But also that same p- other picture where we had the Minister of Health celebrating with, uh, I mean, where do you start, right? Like, um and I know that it's, I mean, it's, it, it would be unfair to blame the average person for wanting to go to the beach or, or for that matter, for wanting to celebrate the Minister of Health in something that absolutely. he did. But at the same yeah. time, you're absolutely right. Those images send the wrong signal. Yeah. You know, and it's, yeah. it's funny enough that the, the criticism around the beach party was more on the economic side. It wasn't about COVID. I don't think anybody even mentioned the, the COVID. It sure. was more around and, and rightfully so. Like it, it is, I think from both sides, it's just not the right time for that. We're not expecting that every single person will comply. Right. Uh, but, but not those who are responsible for handling this pandemic, it's it, and this is unfortunately. I think this is the other issue in Lebanon. There is, um, I, I don't know. I, I think they don't really, um, um, you know, evaluate these kind of steps because something like this has a huge message to the public. Yeah. It's extremely powerful, uh, way more powerful than the minister, you know, sitting and, and maybe explaining the strategy for three hours. That image will sure. will change people's perceptions yeah. of risk, people's behavior. A lot more than you know, a ten-page document outlining what they should or shouldn't do. At least, at least he had a mask on. That was the only redeeming uh, moment in that whole incident. Is that oh, at least? <laughs> <laughs> it's, 
yeah. At least he didn't take it off and throw it aside and, you know, say we did it. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, going back to your point around the economy and how we're moving forward, I think this is the worst time to send the, the message that we're fine because right. the, yeah. the, the risk is still there. Right. Um, and, and now we're in a much wor- worse position than we were three months ago, four months ago, economically. Yes. Uh, I mean, it's going worse. It's getting worse by the day. Yeah. But even there's a lot of talk now around real shortages in medications, in equipment and, and so on and so forth. People are not getting paid their salaries in you know, public hospitals. So we're actually, you know, you buy time in a lot of countries. People did these measures, governments did these measures to buy time to enhance the capacity of the system and to get people used to this new norm. Yes. In this time for us, given the economic problem, that bought time, I know, I mean, we were able to flatten the curve, but that bought time is you know, the, the economic situation is getting worse. Right. We're, we're not, our condition is not improving. We're not setting ourselves up. So I think people should be now even more vigilant than they were, a lot more cautious than they were. Because with time, and we know, and everybody knows who listens to the experts, that this situation will get worse and worse and worse, and that we are still at the beginning of it. Yes. So, um, so, so I think we're even now we should be sending the message to the public that, you know, we, we, we crossed that first stage of flattening the curve. But now we should continue to be extremely vigilant because the risk of, of a research is extremely high, Fatima, particularly with opening up the economy. But just a final point I want to ask you about your experience in Edmonton and in, in Alberta. There's that, yeah. that kind of I, I assume it's a very spacious part of the world. And, and I assume that there is <laughs> yeah. a lot of distance between people regardless, COVID-19 yeah, or otherwise. Yeah. Have yes. you, <laughs> psychologically, has that made it easier for, some, let's say, in your shoes, having seen what Lebanon is going through and sort of going back to this very spacious part of the world? Do you sense that it's just, it's just a lot easier because that's how it's designed anyway, that you can kind of go about your day-to-day affairs and not really think about COVID-19 all the time? And then in Lebanon, there's really no way around it. People are very close to each other. It's a very, very, people live on top of each other in very dense quarters. Yeah. And that there's so difficult to, it's difficult by default in Lebanon to kind of be yeah. that distant anyway. So yeah. is, is there is there something in that that you're able to, in a way, not worry about it too much? And then in Lebanon, you're kind of forced to deal with it. And maybe you become a little more reckless as a result. You become maybe a little more... You know, I, I have to live my life somehow and I'm going to take the risk. Yeah, I think there there are a lot of contextual, you know, differences between, of course, a place like Edmonton and Canada. <laughs> I, mean, I can think of two Lebanon. polar opposites, <laughs> Edmonton and Beirut. Yeah. You tell you something <laughs> funny about, yeah, here being, you know, socially distant already and so right. on. Yeah. I, I told them, I'm, I, it seems like I have been preparing for this all my life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and right. then I was like, I... I, I my life was, you know, so boring. Like this yeah. is, I, because I, I, people ask me, what are you miss doing? And I'm like, I'm still working full time from home. But, right, right. And I think I'm like, my life was really boring before COVID because there wasn't much that I did except for traveling to Lebanon. Right, right. <laughs> that was my, my, you know, and and uh, I think the, the for me at least, I think the biggest issue is 
um, if something happens, like here, okay, we take our precautions, you know, um, we're trying all, there's this collective sense of responsibility that, you know, okay, if I get the virus and, you know, I'm, you know, maybe younger in age, I don't have risk factors and so on, maybe, I mean, my chances of, of surviving through it are high, yeah. but I still feel that I would never take the risk and put someone else at risk and so mm -hmm. on and so mm -hmm. forth. In Lebanon, it goes beyond that. If something happens even personally, like is the health system able to manage? Right, uh, right. Wh where can I go? What's going to happen to me? There's, there's that fear that if something goes wrong, will they be able to manage? I mean, so far, the system has been able to manage very well. So we always... And, and we, thankfully, we haven't gone to the stage of overloading the system, and I hope we don't. But, um, but yeah, there are. I mean, there are a lot of contextual factors that. I mean, whether we compare Lebanon to places like, um, you know, Italy or you know, where even New York, where they had you know right. bigger outbreaks. Yeah. But we have also advantages, like which are unfortunate. But you know, we've probably heard this. We don't have a you know, public um, uh, transportation. We don't have oh. trains. We don't have. <laughs> Uh, so, so which limits the people being in proximity of each other. Uh, we don't have the other thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, in Canada, our most of our deaths here due to COVID were in long-term facilities and nursing yes, homes. Right. So, in Lebanon, the cultural aspect of how you know older people live with their children and they're yes. mostly in smaller villages outside the big cities and so on. Uh, that limited a lot of the, and even in Italy, that was a big issue. Yes, so yes. we had things that worked for us. We had things that worked against us. You know, you <laughs> remind me. You remind uh, me of the financial crisis, two thousand eight. Lebanon seemed okay. The rest of the world well, suffered, but we're there's uh, the economy. I mean, the economy is fairly small. <laughs> we're going to be fine. The world's collapsing. No, no, we're good. We're good. We're shining. It's already. It's already small yeah it's all, exactly <laughs> but but i'm curious about these this is i don't know if it's myth or if it's fact the mm -hmm. smoking may be helpful in terms of transmission and that when i read that on the news at the earlier stages that seemed like smokers were less less likely to catch covid 19. maybe you can correct me if i'm wrong i thought that that seemed a bit odd that news that news bite and i don't know if that is true um, yeah, I think there was a. I think there was a study in France around the you know whether people who consume tobacco have a lower yeah. risk and not. But I don't think there is, and there was really no actual publication. This was just like during the time when they were looking into the data. But and it's something that came out on the news. But there's there's really no evidence around that. So and there's no benefit for Lebanese smoking that they're not catching. No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and this is another thing that, yeah. you know, they, they said that hookah, shisha is allowed now right, right. in public places. And um, I mean, even if there's so much, you know, controversy around, okay, how long does the virus, you know, stay on surfaces and you touch or by breathing or by being close and so on. But then it does increase the risk a lot. It doesn't have to be through the pipe. I mean, if you're sitting with someone and they coughed, I mean, we know that that's one mode of transmission. It's confirmed that if you cough in someone's face, we know asymptomatic people, which is the you know a big issue here, yes. uh, could transmit the virus to others. Like right. the likelihood is lower, but yeah. it is still there. Right. Uh, plus, I mean, smoking when the, we're talking about respiratory illness, uh, I mean, you want to avoid that as much as possible because it will. We also know from a lot of studies now that smokers had worse outcomes. 
and it's logical. I mean, yeah. if you had pneumonia while you're a smoker, uh, you're going to struggle a lot more to recover from pneumonia because that's what potentially a severe case will, will lead to. It's a pneumonia. You're going to have a harder time recovering compared to someone who doesn't smoke. Uh, and any illness, even just a regular you know, flu, if you're a smoker. You're, so there's, I think there's a lot of um, uh, bottom line. Um, uh, it, it shouldn't be. Um, uh, there's no protective effect. There's no evidence that there's a protective effect. Right. And I think if anything, it does increase the risk. But how much? We don't know. But um, um, logically, and if we think about what is you know, plausible, it, it could you could transmit it to someone else. What's clear is that it's going to be with us for the time being, at least until the vaccine emerges some point in the near future. Um, it's an issue I hope that does not, uh, I hope it does not impact Lebanon more than it has already. Lebanon is dealing with too much as it is. And what, yes. you, what you said earlier is an unfortunate reality that people were focusing in on the beach party's financial <laughs> issue and less to do with the masks and social distancing. But that is where the pain is at the moment in, yes, in Lebanon. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I, yeah. I really appreciate a few things. First, I don't care whether you're an expert or not. I prefer people that deny that they're an expert. <laughs> they are the experts, in my opinion. It was very, very, it was very helpful for me to learn a lot about COVID-19 through this conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll link up the piece. And uh, I want to thank you for letting me do a software update before we spoke. I've kept yeah. you for way too long. <laughs> The, oh no! <laughs> the only relief, the only redeeming factor is that I thought you're in Beirut. So no, nope, uh, <laughs> I got away with it at the end. Hopefully, I didn't keep you awake. Hopefully soon. I am planning to go if you know things continue to be as as is and if it opens. And uh, so I'm hoping to be there soon. But uh, I want to thank you too a lot for inviting me to to be a guest at your podcast. And uh, I'll and see you. I know. No, no, go, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> no, I just wanted to say that we started with COVID and we talked about, you know, a lot of other things and it was kind of a, a yeah, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, thank you. It was a great discussion. Thank you. I know you can't talk about one thing in Lebanon without just talking about all of these other things, but. You brought up uh, reconciliation and you brought it back to reform and you took it to the health sector. That's the conversation I think a lot of people should have, starting again from the basics and the basics is really what's missing. And you pointed yeah. at you pointed right at it. We didn't emerge from something properly. We left something very big, and we don't confront mm -hmm. it. So, I'm, and but on the contrary, I'm glad I'm glad we jumped into that. But but I can't wait until I see you in an airport, Paris or Frankfurt with your sort of very <laughs> your hazmat suit on <laughs> and your gloves, and I'm like, oh, I know her. <laughs> <laughs> I did that already in March, yeah. so I had some, <laughs> some practice, I I'll guess. say hi a few meters away from you. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. <laughs> Fatima, uh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to you. Thanks for listening. And a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time. I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. <laughs>